As we gather this morning, we are jumping back into the book of Romans. It's been a few weeks now, but if you remember, we've been doing this for a couple of years. So um, we are in chapter 15, so the end is in sight. Um, We've got a chunk to look at this morning. As we step back, Paul is reaching the end of the epistle, and uh, he he is stepping back. So we're stepping back to sort of absorb and to... I guess, absorb into our own thinking and ministry uh, some of the ways that Paul is looking at his own as he shares it with the church. So we're in Romans chapter 15. It's a lengthy passage. I'm going to read 14 to 29. Hear then the word of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness You're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given uh, given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work in God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped by you, helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, then they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this, and I've delivered to them what has been collected, then I'm going to leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you. We've come to worship. We've come to to know you and to love you and to give our hearts to you afresh. And even now as we sit at your feet and open your word, we long for you to speak to us in truth and in power. That you would do more than inform us, but that you would transform us, that you would change us, that you would shape our thinking in our hearts and in our lives and our ministries, that we may be pleasing to you. So come now, by the power of your Spirit, and speak to your people, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Paul is beginning to wrap up what is possibly, probably the most important letter that it was ever written in the history of the world. Arguably, in terms of the letters in the Bible, maybe it is hard to say one is more important than the others, but Romans as as something that's closest to what we have to a systematic theology in the Bible where he lays out systematically and theologically the gospel and his understanding of of history and the work of God in history and and in Christ in particular and and in Israel and, and the church together and ultimately where God is going and what he is doing. Maybe the greatest book, the greatest letter ever written. And as he's finishing it, as he's coming to the end of what has been something, as I said, a systematic theology, uh, he begins to step back and to look ahead. He's had his nose down in the grind, teaching them, reminding them, he said, of these things. You know, and as he finishes, he lifts up his eyes and he, and, he, and he looks ahead at his plans and what he plans to do and how that relates to the church and his relationship with them. And so in these verses, what we have in this little lengthy passage, uh, Paul is speaking of his call to be a minister to the Gentiles, right? He has a very unique calling among the apostles. He is the, the apostle to the Gentiles. We see it in his missionary journeys and where he's been going and what he's been doing. So he speaks of this call and of the work of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, what God has done as he's here reaching the end of his ministry, because you and I know when he, when he goes to Jerusalem, uh, we should know, when he goes to Jerusalem, it doesn't go well. And he does end up in Rome, but in chains. Uh, in the fullness of the power of the gospel, but in chains. So he is speaking of the power of God in his ministry, of his missional ambitions, where he sees God taking him. He steps back and he gives this big picture of his ministry. In a sense, from its beginning to its end, he speaks about from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the full breadth of his ministry and the minister to the gospel, uh, uh, to the Gentiles and of what God has done. And, and finally, then he lays out, in a sense, his strategic short-term plan, or you might say his, his tactical plan of how he's going to do that. And where he's going. So that's what we're going to touch on. And I want to, as we go, to sort of say, okay, now how does that speak to me in this church, in our ministry? Okay, how does that speak to me and you and your ministry kind of thing as we walk through what Paul has to say? But he starts out by addressing the church as a whole and is expressing his satisfaction in the Roman church and what he knows of them and what he has heard about them as a young church, but a church that is maturing And so in verse 14, he says, I'm fully satisfied about you. I'm happy about you. I've heard good things about you. My brothers, you know, my brothers in Christ, family, you are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. What a great list, right? You're full of goodness. That's like moral and spiritual, right? You're full of goodness, and you're filled with understanding that's intellectual. They have... The things he's teaching them here, he says, most of it you already understand. You're filled with understanding and you are, he says, able to teach each other. What a great list. You know, the the moral and the spiritual of goodness, the, the knowledge, the intellectual of all knowledge, and the practical of being able to teach that and to instill that in the children and the youth and to people who are coming to Christ are able to convey the faith, to convey the things that are here in the book of Romans and the rest of the scripture. Every pastor longs for a church 
it would be described this way. I would first want to be described this way myself. And I love to see that in, in ministry, you know, a church, as he says, I'm satisfied with you. If you're full of goodness, moral and spiritual health, right? And you're filled with knowledge. You're learning and understanding God and his ways and his word. And you're able to teach one another. You're, you're engaged in the community, in the life, in our children, our youth, in those who need to know in small groups and in Bible studies. You're able to teach. It's a rich picture of a vibrant church. And though they have this level of maturity, in verse 15 he says, but still on some points, there are some things I wanted to maybe clear up, fill in. I don't know where he's responding there, what he knows about what they know or don't know. They're filled with knowledge, but there are gaps in their knowledge. I write boldly on some points. I've written to you uh, as a way of reminder of, of some things. In other words, you know, my job, he says, I, I, I've written by way of reminder because of the grace given to me to be a minister of the Gentiles of Jesus Christ to you in the priestly service of the gospel that is an offering of the Gentiles, that is you, the church, uh, the church in Rome, to be an acceptable sacrifice sanctified by the Spirit. So Paul says basically it's my job, right, to remind you, to, to teach you, to drive these things home. It is my job to see the church matured. Right, that the church is an acceptable, that God's people are an acceptable, so to speak, sacrifice, sanctified by the Spirit. We know that sanctification comes partly through the Word of God, right? The Word of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the gospel of God, coming to God's people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, this has been my ministry. Philippians 3.1, he says similar things. You know, I write to you the same things, and it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. I'm glad to do it. It's my job. It's my ministry. I love these things. It's the truth. It's my life, and it's safe for you, for you to be reminded so that you know, so that it gets drilled deep, and so these are the things that shape your thinking and living. So if I get repetitious, I guess I'm just saying, you know, now and then. It's my job to remind us, right, to, to walk through these things again and again. And so he pictures himself in all of that, which I find interesting, as, as a priest. Right in verse 16, it's one of the only places in all of the New Testament where he's going to take, normally the priesthood belongs to all believers. You know, as the scripture says, you're a holy nation and a, and a, and a nation of priests. And he says here, though, he sees his own ministry. He pictures himself as a priest who's preparing an offering to, to God. Right? And he says, my priestly service, you know, as a minister of Christ, Jesus of the Gentiles in this service of the gospel where I'm essentially preparing this new people who are coming into the fold through the gospel and I'm making them acceptable as an offering to God and in seeing and pursuing their sanctification. Getting them saved is one thing, right? Getting them sanctified, matured, Christ-like is, is another whole part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Paul sees it as his job as he, as he follows the, and, and preaches the gospel throughout the world to do this work. And he says, I have reason to be proud. That's an interesting statement. Most of us would blanch at that a little bit. You know, pride, and what does he mean by pride, and what is he proud of? And, and I, actually, I, I think it's more helpful. I, 
I was looking at this, both in the original and then in a bunch of translations, trying to figure out, is that what he is saying? And I think it's important to think that what Paul is saying here in terms of pride is not in the negative pride that we would think of, that you shouldn't be proud of the things that you're, you know, full of yourself and all those things. The New American Standard says it this way. I looked at a bunch of translations. I really like the NAS at this point. It says this, that in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. That's very close to the original text in the way it says it. And I think that's more it. He says, I found in Christ Jesus, which is always important, and that's where he's saying these things, I have found reason to boast in the things that pertain to God, the things that God is doing. But I think it's very clear that he wants in all of this to give all the glory to Jesus. Right? Because what does he say immediately after he says that? In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Through me, yes. But what Christ has accomplished by word and deed, by powers and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, what Christ has done by the Spirit of God is what I, I find reason to be proud of what God is doing in, in, in the midst of the church in his ministry. So he's pointing beyond himself to Christ. He only wants to speak, and I kind of like that language. I don't want to talk about anything except what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing. And what has Christ done? He says, well, he's brought the Gentiles, right, to obedience, right, as he fills out that sentence, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, Right, to outside of Israel. I mean, you see the, the gospel starting in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in this little place. The Messiah comes, and some small portion of the Jews believe. You got this small church. A lot of them reject. But then what has God done? Is that that gospel, that Jewish Messiah, and that gospel has gone all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and now he wants to go to Rome and to Spain. Right? And he's saying what God is doing in bringing the Gentiles, the, the pagan world, the, the not Jews of history at that point in time, God is bringing them to obedience. Right? By powers of signs and wonders, the power of the Spirit of God, so that all the way from Jerusalem, all the way around to Illyricum, he's taming the uncircumcised barbarian. That's Bible language, right? The barbaros, the barbarians, and the, the, the Jews are the circumcised, and they think of the rest of the world as the uncircumcised. There's the Jews, and then there's everybody else. And God is taming the uncircumcised world, the wild world that is outside of Israel, the wild world that doesn't know God, doesn't know his word, doesn't have the Ten Commandments, right? God is taming the wild world and bringing them into the fold. They're responding to the gospel, right? He says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, Paul has been able to preach. So I'm going to have a slide put up here. I don't do this very often. But I think the big picture of Paul's ministry in the world, when the Bible starts naming places and from here to there, and what does that mean in Rome and Spain? And where, you know, there's some of you guys, you need want to see it on a piece of paper. So Right, Illyricum, he says from Jerusalem to Illyricum. So Jerusalem's over here in the Middle East. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Israel sits right on the, ed, the eastern edge of it. And Jerusalem is right there. Illyricum is over here. It's, it, this is Greece and Ma Macedonia. And Illyricum is the last province up against the far western border of Greece. And he says the gospel has gone all the way from here through Antioch 
You remember 1 Peter starts out, it's written to those who are, I wrote them down, into um, Asia Minor, into Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all uh, provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but Asia Minor then. So all the way from Jerusalem through Antioch, through Asia Minor, into Greece, over here to Philippi, then down here to Thessalonica, then down here to Corinth, and, you know, all the way to Illyricum. So from here, which is at least at this point, the far eastern part of the empire, it has come to here, and he says, now I want to come to Rome on my way to Spain. Right? So basically, the, the, the breadth of the Roman Empire. He says, we've already, he's like, I've kind of already done what I can do here, right? We're, you know, the work isn't done, but he's left Timothy, he's left tight, like churches are established, that work is on. Paul has this, you know, these are his missionary journeys, if you remember. His first, he goes from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he goes from Jerusalem, and he goes in here, then he comes up here, and he goes to the island in Iraq around, he's strength. So all his three journeys are here, his first two, I think, are here, and his third he ends up over here, and now this would be his fourth missionary journey that he wants to take to Spain, though he doesn't quite make it. But here's the thing, that from Jerusalem, he's saying, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he says, I've been able to fully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I won't speak of anything except for what God has done through me, but he has planted churches in almost every town. He has brought, he has brought pagans to, to the Jewish Messiah. Right? He has made Christians out of the wild world. And the church is growing all the way across the Roman Empire. Now let's just stop and think about it for a minute for us. In the ministry of HPC, and in your ministry, in the life, and in our community. To whom are we called? See, Paul says he is called as a, as a missionary to the Gentiles. He had a very specific calling. There were others who were reaching the Jews and ministering in that area. But he went abroad. Right? There are others, like we had the Livermore. Scott Livermore gave an update last week, and his calling is to, do you remember? He's called to educators and students. Right? He's part of a ministry, the crew that reaches students, and so he works with educators to help them reach students and to be faithful in that public education sphere. One of the missionaries we support, Emily Gua, came to Christ in our church. God called her to China. In China, she met a national whom she married. And, and then God called them here to seminary and now has called them to ministry and international students at a university now uniquely uh, qualified for that ministry. So who are we as a church? I've sometimes wrestled with, you know, that I know people church planning, you know, Greg, our brother, you know, he's planning a church. And there's some excitement about that. There's some, you know, and I'm like, we're just a suburban established church, right? We're just, we've been here, we've celebrated more than 50 years that this church has been in existence. We're not being planted. We're, we're planted, right? We got deep roots, and you know, but there's nothing wrong with that. We're, we, we have to own who we are. Like when Paul went on to other places, he left Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus, right? And I feel like God has left me here to pastor. Sometimes I think, well, maybe I should go here, or maybe I should go to the Michigan, or maybe I should go, you know, and then there's some way where he's like, you know, it's okay to be Timothy in Ephesus. Paul left him there to the established church, and who we are in this then neighborhood. You know, we do give and have a global vision for missions, but we need to have a local one too, right? The church in Ephesus and Timothy and their ministry, that we, we are called to posture it in this neighborhood to reach, we're reaching families and children, and we have unique opportunities that are here that are ours that we need to embrace and to say that is exactly who we are and who God is calling us to and to think then who, how do we fit into that? How do you 
fit into who we are as a church doing what we do. But I want us to notice Paul's profound theology, his belief and his confidence in the power of God in the Holy Spirit for ministry. Right, so Paul, where is Paul's power for ministry? He's talking about, I mean, that is a tremendous ministry. There's nobody in the history of the church who can look and say, you know, yeah, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, on to Rome, who has done, has planted the churches he's planted, you know, from raw materials, you know, first man, you know, and he says, and I'm going to keep going where Christ has not been named, right? And just from raw, no knowledge of Jesus, he has planted a network of churches throughout the Roman Empire that literally goes on to change the world, right? You can't say, so Paul, where is this sense, and that's why I, I, I stumble when he says that, you know, I have reason to be proud, and where is his, where is his confidence, where is his proud, where is he boast, and I think we need to see his profound theology of confidence in the power of God for ministry, so I want us to notice three things under this idea. Just the real power of the Holy Spirit, the concurrence of God's work and our work, and that all of it then is for the glory of Christ, right? So first, the real power of the Holy Spirit, right? In verse 18, that's what Paul is saying, that I will not venture to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me. And then it's a long sentence to bring the Gentiles to obedience by the word, by powers and wonders, by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. From Jerusalem all the way, all, all of it from there to there. He says, I won't speak of anything but what Christ has done through me by the Spirit of God. Right? And so this is the way he thinks about what's happening. Any success, the success that he has enjoyed. I won't talk about anything except for what Christ has done. And he tells us how he did it. He says in 19, by word and deed, by signs and wonders. All by the power of the Spirit of God. The success that Paul has had among the Gentiles is not because Paul is wonderful. In many ways, he says, I'm not wonderful. His success is in the power of God. That's why he opens this book. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for the Gentile. This gospel, Paul says, I have discovered. I'm not ashamed of it. This word about Christ, who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. This gospel, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for the sake and for the faith of the, Gent for the Greeks and the Gentile world, for all who will believe. So Paul takes himself, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power. What Christ has done through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? So there's this confidence he has in his ministry. And even as I think about this neighborhood and I think about this community or I think about larger Chattanooga and I think about who we are, we think about our own ministry. Right? The, what, is our, what is our confidence? Where does our hope lie in accomplishing anything? Seeing anyone come to Christ, being effective in any ministry. It's the real power of the Holy Spirit. And so second, I want us to talk about the concurrence of God's work and ours. This is an important biblical concept because it, because it establishes our work in confidence and hope and expectation. 
because it runs concurrently with God's work. Right now, concurrent simply means it happens at the same time. Right? And so I want to talk about the concurrence of God's work and our work. In other words, that God works in our working. Right? And do you know that? Do you believe that? That when you're being obedient and when you are stepping out, when you do ministry, when you, anything that the Bible calls us to, do you know that when we step out in that obedience, we pray and trust and believe and then work, that God works in our working? That in, in fact, anything that is accomplished in our working is his grace and his power present in the midst of it. This is what Paul, this is that expression that he uses there in verse 18. I'll speak of nothing except for what Christ has accomplished through me. What Christ, who accomplished it? Jesus did. Well, how did he do it? Through me. Right, and, that, and that's our hope is that Christ will accomplish mighty things. But he'll do them through us. As we believe, as we pray, as we have a vision for mission, as Paul does, as we have a, a, a vision and a, and, a, and a plan, and as we pray, and as we are obedient, step out, and as we work, God works in our working. And then we'll speak of nothing but what Christ has accomplished through us. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's a classic text on concurrence. You know part of it anyway, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? It's that work. Right? We are called to work, and with the fear and trembling is this whole idea of, of sobriety with seriousness. Like, like, you're not just to work. Like, you get down to serious business, serious work. You guys should be working out your salvation, your following of Christ, your, your, your Christian life. Work. But then he says, but why should I work? He says, for, because it is God who is working in you. Work, because he's working in you. What is he working in me? Both to will and to do his good pleasure. Any good pleasure that, of his that I do. Any work that I do that is Christian. Any following of Christ, whether it is in my morals, you know, full of goodness or knowledge or practical teaching and sharing that with others in the gospel and mission and ministry. God works in you to will, to desire, and to do of his good pleasure. So work. Because God works concurrently. He establishes your work. He gives power to what you're doing. He, he, through the foolishness of what you preach, people will come to know Christ. The concurrence of God's working and our working. So important for understanding the Christian life because it doesn't, this, this knowledge of God's sovereign power doesn't make it so that we become lazy and don't have to work. It actually, that this knowledge of his sovereignty and his power establishes our work because he works concurrently with us. He fills our work with spiritual power. He says in 19, it is by the power of the Spirit of God that I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. May every one of us be able to say that at some point. It is by the power of the Spirit of God that I have fulfilled my ministry. It's not Paul's ministry, but you have one. That I have fulfilled the ministry the gospel of Christ. So we see the real power of the Holy Spirit working concurrently with our work. And because that is true, all the glory, and I just want to say that again here at the end of this point, is all the glory is His. 
all glory belongs to Christ. So like Paul, we should venture to speak of nothing except what Christ has accomplished, what God is doing, that he graciously involves us, he graciously is willing to use us, that he calls us into ministry and we are the instruments in his hands and that he does mighty things to us. But, but apart from him, we can do nothing. Remember Jesus said that, John 15, apart from me, you can do, you can do nothing of lasting spiritual good. You could tie your shoelaces, but you're not going to save anyone, right? You're, you're not going to change anyone. Your words are going to have no power, right? Apart from him, we can do nothing, but by his grace, he says, when you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. When I'm concurrent with you, you're abiding in me and I'm abiding with you, much fruit, so it is written, 1 Corinthians 1.31, where Paul says it. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So it is written, don't boast in anyone or in anything, and especially not in yourself. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. And to think that you are anything apart from him can do anything will lead us into dark places. So as we think about the ministry of HPC, how do you think about your ministry? And how we have hope in this community to be any use to the gospel and to Christ. Do you believe, do you trust in the real power of the Holy Spirit? And are you experiencing what, what Christ is doing, what Christ can do in and through us when we are obedient and faithful? And are we giving Him the glory, whatever He is doing? And He is doing much in the life of our church. And whatever it is, are we on our knees giving glory to God for His goodness, His faithfulness, His power? And so Paul's mission statement, as he talks about his call to the Gentiles and the power of God for ministry, uh, and then he goes on to talk about his mission statement and his strategy, so to speak. And his mission statement in verses 20 and 21 Paul says he's called to bring the, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. His confidence for this is in Christ. But how is the world that is ignorant of the God of Israel going to hear and respond? Well, Paul has experienced firsthand the power of the gospel. He preaches it in, in a crowd of people who've never heard anything of it before. The foolish message of a crucified carpenter who died for the sins of the world. He preaches it. And people come to faith in Christ. He has experienced the power of the gospel to change the hearts and the lives of anyone and everyone who will believe, whether Jew or Gentile, wherever they're from, whoever they are, wherever they've been. There's a power here that Paul... And so... That's why Paul made it the mission of his life. He's seen this power to transform people on the outermost wilds of the world, morally speaking, politically and economically speaking, in, and throughout Rome and its empire. He's seen the power of the gospel and says in verse 20, then I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but I want to be like Isaiah says in verse 21, those who have never 
been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Paul believes that's how it will be. Paul believes that, that the prophet is right, that when the gospel goes out, those who do who have not seen, who have not heard, will believe, will understand. And so he wants to go where it's never been heard. He wants to see and continue to experience God using him in bringing the world to Christ. Paul's mission is a fulfillment of prophecy, but so is ours. Continuing in this vein, continuing in this stream, following in this legacy, Paul's mission is a fulfillment. He's the first to name the name of Christ, to see and understand what God has done, what God is doing. Can you see from what Paul is doing? He started in Jerusalem as a Jew. Jesus saves him, Antioch, Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia, crossing over Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, Lyricum, Rome. And do you know how many believers there are in the world right now? Or at least on paper. (laughs) 2.2 billion Christians. Right? And Paul, Paul is saying that the people will believe the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation. And it's what he is doing. And I will boast of what he has done in and through me. God has done it and God is doing it. And what does this mean for us? What is, what is your mission in the life of our community? Many of us are concerned, and I get it, the increasingly secular, anti-Christian culture uh, that is becoming more and more polarized and antagonistic. It used to be that, you know, Christians, you didn't always agree with them, but you respected them, you know. They, you know, they were pretty strict or pretty, you know, in terms of their morality, they had a very, you know, conservative morality. But at least, you know, you didn't agree, but you respected them. There's no room for that anymore, right? Once upon a time, the church was at least respected in its differences, but now we have become so polarized that what we believe is a threat <laughs> to the world, right? It's a threat to those around us. And I don't know, as we stand and think about our own ministry, here's Paul. We're increasingly secular culture. But where many of, sees, we, of us see obstacles, Paul's looking at a world that doesn't know Christ, that is antagonistic, that says Caesar is Lord and worships pagan gods and morality is in the, in the perverted state that it is in through the Roman Empire. Paul looks at it and says, I can't wait to go to Rome and then to Spain. Where else can I go where they don't know Jesus? Because God is at work. Jesus said, I will build my church against the very gates of hell. None shall stand against it. As we look at our ministry, do we have hope and expectation of what God will do? And then Paul gets down to business. He doesn't leave it very theoretical. He's, he's got a plan, right? He's got a strategic plan or a tactical plan. I'm always confused about you know, exactly these things. But he's got, he's got a strategy or, and a tactical plan. How is he going to accomplish his mission? His mission is I want to preach Christ where he's not been named before, right? I want to, you know, I've been doing that. But now he's named all over the place in Greece and, and, and Asia Minor. So now his plan, his mission statement is to preach Christ where no preacher has preached him before. Right? And that's why I want to get to Spain. But how is he going to get there? And he has a plan. He's, 
thinking about how he's going to do this to get to Rome and beyond. And so in 22 and 23, Paul's been wanting to go to Rome for a long time. You know, he says, this is the reason why I've often been hindered from coming to you. I've been wanting to come. I've been planning to come. And along the way, I've tried to come, but I feel like God has, has not allowed that to happen. And he says, this is the reason why. Because God has been doing that work from Illyricum all the way around to Jerusalem. And that because of the ministry is not finished there. Right? His mission kept him from going. There was still work to be done in Greece as he moved all the way through. But now as he reaches Illyricum, the far west of Greece, that's why he says in verse 22, but now since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, since I've longed to come for many years to you, you're the next step, right? From Illyricum, when it's going to cross the water, I'm in Rome. Right? Now, now that my work on this side is done, I'm coming to you. His sights, he sets to the west. And I'm going to go to Rome, I'm going to spend some time, I'm going to raise support, and I'm going to go to Spain. But first, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Right? First, I've got this mission of mercy. And not just of mercy, but it's a, it's a mission of unity. It's a mission, you know, that in, in, in the early church between Jews and Gentiles, there was often tension. The Jews were astounded that God was saving Gentiles, right? The, the, the Jewish Christians were just astounded that, that they were allowed, right? They used to call them Gentile dogs, right? There was the circumcised and the uncircumcised, right? And they're, like, they're the Wild West. They don't, God's not interested in them. But here, the new church is, in every place, a marriage of Jew and Gentile. They've been brought in. And so there's this opportunity for unity. There's often division. What of the old Jewish laws do we have to keep? You know, what part of this do we have to do? Where does circumcision fit in? You know, and you can read Acts and you see that they're fighting, arguing over these things. And Paul sees an opportunity. The Jewish church is suffering. There's some poverty, maybe some kind of famine. And in Greece and in the Macedonian churches, there's an abundance. So he takes a collection from the from the largely Gentile churches, and he wants to take that offering to Jerusalem, to the largely Jewish churches, as a relief and a gift from the Gentile churches. It's a beautiful thing. And he says he wants to do this. He says he wants to do it before he goes on the rest of his journey. He sees it as important. He wants to do it himself. And I find that Interesting how Paul, who's planted all these churches, and, and he wants himself to bring and bridge this to unify Jewish and Gentile churches. And he says that it's largely appropriate. If you look in verse 27, he says, you know, for they're pleased to do it. The, 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 the Greek churches want to do it. Indeed, they owe it in a sense for the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings of, of Israel the Messiah and the gospel have come out of Israel. And he says, and now some of the material blessing is shared back. And there is this interdependence between the churches that is appropriate, spiritual material blessings. So Paul plans to go, and he plans to stop on his way in Rome. He says, I hope to see you in passing, to enjoy your company, and once I've enjoyed your company, he says, I hope to go to Spain with your support. This is how missionaries do it, just a side note. Missionaries go to existing churches, 
and find support to go to areas that there will be no support. So if he's going to go to Spain, he's not only, he said, not only going to fellowship in, in Rome, but he plans to raise support, to raise funds, to move on. All right, so in 28, when he says, when he's finally, personally finished delivering this aid, this plan is to head to Spain, right? And so we see this big picture of Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles, and then part of it is the ministry of the Gentiles to the Jews and graciously supporting them in their need, all by the power of the Spirit, he says, and now he wants to preach Christ where he's not known. From the eastern frontier to the westernmost of the empire, passing through Rome to Spain. What does he expect when he comes to Rome? To the heart of the empire. Rome is the, literally the economic, political, social, philosophical, theological, military center of the known world. The greatest empire the earth had ever seen to that date. And what does Paul expect when he goes there? I love verse 29, his confidence. <laughs> I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He's going to come with power, right, with blessing, because he doesn't come alone. Right? You see Paul's clear calling and mission and this corresponding expectation of Christ's blessing and his power. In some ways, we need to have a clear sense of our calling and our mission and what we're doing. To pray and to trust, but as we do, to believe. To have the confidence that we come with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is why Paul says, I, I venture to speak of nothing except for Christ and what he's accomplished. That's why he says in, to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right in the fullness of the blessing that is ours in him. So you might be asking in this, as I'm thinking about my own ministry here, sometimes I feel like even in this little venue, you know, Hickson, Tennessee, you know, in this neighborhood, in this community in Chattanooga, what can we do? What can we accomplish? What can we hope in, in our little sphere, with our little resources, with this group of people, and some of you who are online, what can we do? What hope do we have? What is our expectation when we step out into our community? What could Paul do in the face of Rome, the empire whose legions shook the earth and literally conquered the world? James Stewart, preacher, says this, on the one side there was a metropolis of the world, the heart of the empire, magnificently proud and regal on her seven hills, ruling with an, a rod of iron, shaking the earth with the march of her invincible legions. On the other side, you can see, and in this corner... This little Jew with his scarred face and his frail-looking body and nothing at all to offer, nothing but what he called his gospel. But then to Paul, that was simply everything. I am sure, he cries, verse 29, that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Is that how you come? How you expect to come? 
That's the gospel you have. It's not a different one, right? It's the same one, the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. Is this your expectation as you minister in, in power and fullness, the blessing of Jesus Christ through the gospel, whether you're in trail life or American heritage or you're teaching Sunday school or leading a small group or tutoring our children or working in the day school or, or whatever your ministry in the life of the church, wherever you plug in, do you do it? Do you expect that it will be in the fullness of the blessing and the power and the grace of Christ, working concurrently with your working as you're faithful and obedient, praying and trusting My friends, I don't want to talk about anything except what Christ has accomplished through us. And I believe He has mighty things that He can and He will do as we believe and as we pray and as we are obedient and as we are faithful to step out into work. That Christ will work in our working. And so will come the fullness of the blessing of Christ to his church, and to our community. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a global God, that you are the God of the whole world, that you are the creator, that you have made us in your own image, that you, that you yourself are a God who has come on mission to seek and to save those who are lost, that you've sent your own Son that he might bear our sin in his own body on the cross, that we may be forgiven. Father, I pray that the foolishness of this message, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, so that we may be forgiven and adopted and embraced into the very family of God. Father, I pray you would put it on our lips, that you would put the confidence in our hearts that this is not just our ministry, but your power in your ministry. Father, teach us to abide in you, that we may bear much fruit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.